Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda, and this is a friendly reminder to rate and review the podcast, especially if you're on the Apple Podcast app. Um, all you need to do is just scroll down. You see where that the, that star section is. Uh, give it a rating. Write a review. It really helps us grow. It helps us with our rankings. And it just further legitimizes the show. So if you're new to the show and you like it, please rate and review. Um, if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review. I can't tell you how much it means to us. All right. On today's show, uh, Daniel McAdams joins today to, to help me understand Venezuela a bit more. Um Daniel McAdams, he's a, the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, and he's also the co-host of uh, the Ron Paul Liberty Report, where you can find on YouTube. Uh, we're talking about Venezuela, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy. Um, on today's show, I'm honored to have Daniel McAdams. Uh, Daniel is the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Um, he's also the co-host of the Ron Paul Liberty Report, and I'm sure many of the people listening right now are very familiar with it. Um, it's one of the most reliable and best YouTube channels in the world, and it's something that I really depend on to get my analysis out there. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the show. Henry, thanks so much for having me with you. I'm really happy to join you. The pleasure, the pleasure is all mine. And I'm really happy that you're able to join today because, you know, I like I was telling you before the show, um, I concentrate mainly on the Middle East. That that's where I really have my that that's where I have my gaze on. And whenever something happens in Venezuela, you know, I always it takes me time to really go through and and uh, flip through the you know the crap to find the truth. And, and when I actually saw that there was a coup taking place. The first thing I thought was that um, the colonels conspired against Maduro. That there was, you know, the CIA, the CIA got to the to the military, and I thought there was an actual coup. Um, in reality, that's not really what the case was. And I, and, and I was hoping that you could, uh, you know, bring a little bit more context into what actually happened with this so-called coup. Well, it's interesting, and there there still is some speculation on exactly what happened, um, but I think from a few different pieces. Uh, that I've read and that are out there now, and this includes even the Washington Post and the Atlantic uh, had a piece today, I think. Uh, but primarily the thought entered my mind when I read a piece on the Moon of Alabama website. But in some way, I think this was kind of a, um, a, a counter operation, a counter coup operation uh, launched by Maduro and maybe with the Russians' help uh, 
Um, and it sounds a little bit crazy and conspiratorial, but if you hear it out, if you haven't read the article yet, uh, it's pretty clear from the John Bolton video that he made at the end, at the end of the coup day where he was crestfallen and he said, Hey guys, um, he named off the names, you know, the head of the, uh, the defense minister in um, Venezuela, the, a couple of generals, Hey guys, uh, you said you were with us. What happened? And a little tear in his eye. And, um, so it appears it's pretty obvious now that there was some negotiations, I think, between them. And the whole thing may have just been a ruse. And that's what of Alabama is, is uh, surmising. And I think there's maybe something to it. Okay, here comes a representative of the U.S. government and Juan Guaido to these guys. They're approaching them saying, hey, guys, this is what's going to happen. Here's what we have to offer. Uh, the, uh, the military officers say, okay, we're with you. We're going to, at the, at, the, at the exact opportune moment, we're going to switch over to your side. Uh, and then meanwhile, they go back to Maduro and say, you're never going to guess what's going on. And, uh, you know, just go with it, just go with it, you know, and flip the switch, flip the script on the day. Um, and I'm not trying to make light of it, but it almost appears as if this happened because Guaido came out there. He did his early morning dawn dramatic video. This is the beginning of the end of Maduro's usurpation of the presidency. The, uh, all, of, uh, all levels of the military are with me. This is going to be over quickly. And then it, it was like a big fizzle. It was like lighting a bad firecracker. Nothing happened. Yeah, there was a little bit of violence and a couple of skirmishes, but nothing dramatic whatsoever. And so it may have been really kind of the joke on Guaido, the joke on Bolton, the joke on Pompeo. But really, and I don't think he was in on it, but I think the real joke is on Trump, who fell for all of this ridiculous neocon nonsense. Do you, do you think Trump really trusted Bolton and his advisors when they said that they could actually make regime change happen? I, I you know, it's, I have a hard time gauging what Trump trusts, doesn't trust. Is he is he capable of trust? Is he a guy so far, a fish so far out of water that it's totally hopeless? Uh, you know, and some people that have been close to him have subject, subject, suggested that to me, too, that he's he's so over his head on a lot of this stuff. But there are things that he's good at. And I think he is quite good at them. I mean, I don't think anyone works a rally like he does. And I wasn't, I wasn't a, uh, a Trump supporter, but I enjoyed watching his rallies. They were, they were tremendous. There are things he does really well. I don't think focusing uh, on something of, of real importance like this is one of those things. And I think there are some things that indicate that he canceled his daily intel briefings, which is pretty unusual for a president. Uh, and you might say, okay, yeah, I don't want the CIA bothering me every morning, telling me all this stuff, all this bad news. But the problem is then he said, I'll just have Bolton do it <laughs> instead. You know, and that's, that's okay, that's the lazy guy's way out. But Bolton is thinking he's lucky stars because he gets to filter all the news. And that, uh, aside from Fox News, would be about the only thing that Trump sees. So it's dangerous, I think, in a way, for him to limit his information to the filter of Bolton. Because Bolton and the neocons, as we know, filtered all the information to the Iraq war in 2003. And it was all a bunch of lies. So, uh, is a, a, sorry, it's a long way of answering your question. Uh, but is he is he capable of, of understanding or trusting Bolton? I don't even think he. I don't even think it goes that far. Yeah, it, it's like he put the worst. He he's trusting the worst possible guy on the job. It, it's something I actually saw, and I and I just read this um, that Pompeo went ahead and he was claiming that uh, Guaido was duly elected. And meanwhile, the media, they, they parroted everything that he said, like that he was duly elected. And that's not exactly the case, right? That's not the case at all. And, and it really is a sad, I mean, you know, I, I, I should, 
I'd lived through the 2002, 2001 to 2003 lead up to the Iraq war. I was working for Dr. Paul on the Hill. And, uh, you know, obviously he was opposed from the very beginning. We knew that it was all lies, but the preponderance of the media was so was so strongly in favor of it and unquestioning. And they all got slapped in the face. They were all totally wrong. They, 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 they should have learned their lesson. That's don't, don't just be a, a conveyor belt of, of regime lies. Uh, and they didn't. And I think it's actually worse now with Venezuela because there's not even, there's, there's, there were a few voices back in 2002 questioning it. But now, as you say, there's just nothing. And so when Pompeo says something as preposterous as that, uh, it doesn't matter what you think about Maduro, uh, Guaido, socialism, electoral politics. There, there is a thing called facts. And he was not duly elected. He wasn't elected to anything. He was elected in 2015 to the National Assembly. Uh, and he was a, a, a relatively unknown backbencher. The leader of the opposition was Leopoldo Lopez. It was the first thing that happened when this, when this uh, coup started is they broke him out of jail. Um, which doesn't show a lot of confidence in Guaido. Um, and then the first thing Lopez did is go off to, to the Spanish embassy and, and, and hide out there. But no, he was elected to parliament, uh, but never to the presidency. He didn't even run for the presidency. So it's just another one of the many lies that they're trotting out at a fever pace. And you would think that he, the way that the media is portraying him, the way that you know so many you know guys like Marco Rubio and John Bolton and you know the typical um, war hawkish guys in the Republican Party, and not just the Republican Party, but the typical culprits, um, they act like he ha- is is really popular. I mean, does he have any sort of following? Does he have any type of support within Venezuela? Well, there was a poll taken in January when he declared himself president after a late night phone call from Mike Pence. Maybe he saw the Lord or something. I don't know. But he declared himself president right after his talk with Pence. Uh, and there was a poll that showed that I think only one of four Venezuelans had even ever heard of him. So he was an unknown figure. He didn't, he didn't have any support because he was a backbencher. You know, he was, he, was not a, he was not a leading figure in the opposition. So, you know, he comes from relative obscure, from, from pure obscurity to somehow this great uh, champion of democracy, even though he's, he is unelected. Do you think that the CIA, they just identified him as some sort of asset? Well, there was a great piece by Max Blumenthal a couple of months ago, uh, who really went and did a lot of the legwork. And he is the, the Greystone Project. Uh, he went back and checked in, and really there have been State Department which you could substitute USAID slash CIA projects going back 10, 15 or more years uh, that, that Guaido, that Lopez, and that others in the opposition had taken part in. And, you know, this happens a lot in, in Eastern Europe. It's happened a lot. Uh, the Arab Spring, you're probably uh, more familiar than, than I with that. But the Arab Spring, there was a lot of training of young politicians and it's, uh, you know, it basically it's training the cadres to do the to do the bidding of the United States when they finally get in power. And the opposition of Venezuela were all taking part in this. They were all rewarded for this. And uh, they their ties to the U.S. government go back years and years and years. And what I'm kind of worried about right now, and I'm actually surprised this didn't happen, like, I always get scared that there's like going to be some type of a sniper fire or something like that to, to create more violence and to create more panic. And then so that the U.S. or just any other human rights 
organization can go ahead and condemn the government and, you know, the U.S. can make a better case for sanctions or even military intervention. I mean, were you surprised that didn't happen? Or do you expect anything like to happen like that in the future now that this coup has not really been anything? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think someone write, if someone wrote the book on these coups, the, the great title would be, there are, always, there are always snipers or something, there must be snipers. Because it is the case, and actually in 2002 in Venezuela, when they managed in the U.S., actually the U.S. government bragged about it when, when Chavez was briefly overthrown, they said we did it. Uh, this was George Friedman of the International Republican Institute, uh, which is a U.S. government-funded entity. He bragged and said, we did it, we got rid of him. Um, but there were snipers there. There were snipers at the Maidan in Ukraine. Uh, there were snipers, uh, I mean, you name it, uh, in every one of these coups, there are always snipers. A uh, little surprised maybe that there weren't any this time. Maybe they tried to mix it up because there was this issue of the armed personnel carrier that rammed into some people. Uh, and I think they were trying to build that up as the causes belli. But I don't know if you noticed, but some people on Twitter posted uh, the, the full chronology of the events. And it looks very much like it was the opposition who hijacked these APCs because you could clearly see they had the blue armbands unless they were the government pretending to be the opposition, pretending to be the government, which is always the possibility. But whatever the case, um, it looked like it was staged uh, to kind of serve as the cause of spell eye. Not as dramatic as snipers. Maybe they're, maybe they're saving that for the next time. And it's funny that you mentioned it because I remember when um, Maduro, he apparently he he burnt humanitarian aid. He, he set humanitarian aid on fire. And I heard multiple sources. So I'm kind of confused on this. But um, from what I saw, it looked like it was someone from the opposition who threw a, a Moktov cocktail at the aid. And it almost looked like he did it by mistake. It just kind of threw out of his hair and at hand, and they and they and they kind of just spin that story for for at least a week that he intentionally burnt that. Um, so I wasn't surprised to hear or see that that clip of that armored vehicle going and you know ramming into a bunch of people was played over and over and over and over again. But you would think that all these major networks would have more than just one camera, like. <laughs> Like, what's going on in the rest of Venezuela? Direct feed from Langley. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, even if it was, as they say, as, as unpleasant as it is, let's be honest, uh, to do that, these guys were combatants in a military coup. They were throwing Molotov cocktails at military vehicles, and they ended up getting hit by those vehicles. Um, I would just challenge anyone to go to downtown Washington in the middle of a coup, a military coup against the U.S. government and start throwing Molotov cocktails at a U.S. military vehicle. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's those are the things that happen in war. And, and I would, I would put forth that far worse things have happened in Paris and no one is even bothering to talk about it at all. Uh, how many stories have we seen with people with their eyes shot out, shot through the head, a journalist shot and roughed up, it, the media is totally uninterested in it. So it just goes to show the hypocrisy of what passes for a free press in the United States. So n now that uh, Guaido, I mean, he's kind of proven himself to be a loser. Um, like, do you think that he is, that the CIA will like lose interest in him or the State Department will lose interest in him? And do you think that he could be in danger? 
Yeah, that's what I said on uh, on the Liberty Report on Tuesday. I think it was that um, you know the danger for Guaido is he's worth more dead than alive right now. And uh, uh, Lou Rockwell called me yesterday and said you may have saved his life by saying that <laughs> because maybe they called off the bad guys to to whack him. But it's certainly true. I would hate to be Guaido because you don't have a friend in the world. Uh, you've got Bolton, you know, just pissed off at you. You've got Pompeo. You've got your own your own guys mad at you, and plus you're the laughing stock of Venezuela. You're out there like a big tough guy. Hey, this is all going to go down. Everyone's going to follow me. He looks around. There's a handful of people, and in, in particularly if you get outside of Eastern Caracas, which is the wealthy neighborhood, there's no one supporting him. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, he was going to go lead the people, uh, as Bolton uh, claims that he does, and he went to a neighborhood. Uh, that wasn't pro-opposition, and he actually the military of, the, of Venezuela had to protect him and get him back in his car as he as he as he you know squealed out of there because uh, he's not supported certainly in the poorer parts of town. So there, there apparently there's been reports about um, Maduro. He was about to flee, um, but that now, but and I'm really confused on this. But there's reports that the Russians told him to stay. That they like you can stay in the country. We have your back. Um, I mean, can you add a little bit more context into what actually went on over there? Well, that's what Pompeo claimed that night. Uh, this is the same Pompeo who a week and a half ago at Texas A&M said, we lie, we cheat, and we steal. That's what we do for a living. Uh, so his credibility is not great. And uh, the idea sounds pretty preposterous to me uh, because, uh, you know, he also claimed that the only reason that they, that they didn't, uh, that the other people they had signed on to defect didn't defect is because there's 20,000 Cuban soldiers in Venezuela. And that seems pretty high because there are only 90,000 soldiers in the entire Cuban army. So they have 30% of their entire military parked in Venezuela. Seems a little bit uh, stretchy to me. But uh, I mean, I, I, I'm a little depressed that the media is not more skeptical on what Pompeo was trying to say. And even President Trump actually in his own President Trumpy way, I think backed away from what Pompeo said a little bit when he made some comments last night. Well, Trump seems kind of hesitant now. Like he wasn't. He, he seems a lot less gung ho about a regime change in, in Venezuela. And I, I'm wondering if you think it has anything to do with just the the overall failure of the operation. Well, you can imagine. Imagine putting yourself in this place. First of all, you've got to spend your entire day with neocons constantly bothering you, cajoling you, telling you, hey, this is going to be a cakewalk. Let's do this. Let's do this. We got to hit Iran. We got to hit Venezuela. We got to hit North Korea. I mean, it, it talk, it talk about how annoying it must be to have these guys. But if, if it was me and I was in Trump's shoes, I would be furious because he looks like a fool. He looks, he looks idiotic for believing these guys, you know, the gang who could never shoot straight. And here he is believing them, giving them credibility, letting them go along with their games. And it all blows up in his face. The only thing that's keeping him from being politically wounded, and we, we talked about this a little bit off camera, Henry, the only thing that's keeping him from being severely wounded is that his opposition, the Democratic Party, is all on board with this regime change. So, except for Tulsi Gabbard, who's the only one who's come out. Uh, but can, I mean, w what a juicy, ripe, low-hanging fruit for political opposition to do, to grab onto this and say, look how reckless this man is. He promised us one thing. No more regime change wars. And look what a hash he's made of this whole thing. He's clearly not fit to be an officer. It just writes itself. But that doesn't happen because we really don't live in a system where there's real diversity of thought 
when it comes to really these life and death war and peace issues. And what I find really interesting is that there's even a split within the libertarian community. Um, before that, we we started recording this show. Um, I tweeted out something about about Venezuela, and you know, libertarian libertarians responded to me, and they were like, "Listen, like, I'm normally against regime change, but in this case, uh, you know, I'm I'm concerned about the two cases that they usually bring up are number one, obviously the 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 evil." Uh, communist empire will somehow spread spread out of Venezuela into other countries and, you know, just repeating McCarthy uh, talking points. Or they'll just talk about the geopolitical interest of China and Russia. And um, I'm wondering if you knew any more, like, if you knew about or know why Russia and China are interested in what exactly that relationship uh, details. Well, this is something that Dr. Paul often talks about on the Liberty Report. This is this is how off track we are as a country. China and Russia are down there investing. They're investing in the infrastructure. They're investing in oil. Uh, you know, they've they spent billions of dollars in Venezuela, which is a potentially rich country, uh, and 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 they're interested in making a buck. They're interested in being capitalists. And here we are. We're interested in building our empire and and reverting to this idiotic Monroe Doctrine that that uh, is completely misquoted and misunderstood in the first place. So we're going down there, pushing people around, telling them who their president is, who it isn't. And these horrible Chinese commies are down there doing business. How dare they? It's like the world has been turned upside down. It's completely nuts. And, you know, this whole libertarian thing, I mean, I don't get it. So many of them are, are, are furious with me because they have this bizarre idea that somehow I'm pro-commie because because I, not only do I refuse to endorse a U.S. military intervention, I refuse to repeat the regime change talking points. And that's what they don't want. They want me to say, they want people like us to say, oh, it's worse than ever. People are eating their pet hamsters. Uh, they're dying in the streets, uh, but we shouldn't intervene. No, if you, go that, if you go down that road, you're repeating the regime change talking points. You are doing the heavy lifting. And Caitlin Johnstone, who's not a libertarian, but who's very good on non-interventionism, she wrote a terrific piece a few weeks ago on this whole thing. No, you are repeating, you are a conveyor belt for CIA regime change propaganda. Whether or not you support regime change or not, it doesn't matter. So I'm just not going to play the game. You know, uh, Lou Rockwell has always told me, never let them force you to use the, the language of the neocons, the regime change language when they want you to. And I think it's just absolutely key. Um, my friend, uh, Jose Nino, who's a real Venezuelan expert, um, he writes for Mises. Um, he says he's from Venezuela. He, he was, uh, he, I think he came to the States when he was around, uh, seven or so. And he is very aware of the economic, he writes about that almost not exclusively as a lot of other things, but he writes a lot about the economic problems in Venezuela and, he condemns a lot of their economic practices, obviously. How, however, the case that he makes for 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 not uh, going on some type of imperial escapade over there uh, is that if you think the migrant crisis is bad now, then wait till Venezuela erupts into civil war. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a case for that. That's that's a possibility, certainly no doubt. But the thing that if everyone is so concerned with the well-being of Venezuelans. Uh, why not just put some pressure on our government to end the sanctions? You know, there were sanctions all along and it did cause problems and they, you know, they don't have a perfect economic system, 
uh, I don't think uh, I don't think we have the right to uh, throw the first stone when it comes to that to that matter in, in anyway. But but it wasn't until in, until 2017 that the sanctions were ratcheted up to the level where they really caused pain, and they're designed to cause pain. They're designed to cause people to die. We know this from Madeleine Albright. We know this from just how sanctions work. They hurt the people who are the most vulnerable in society. So if if these so-called libertarians were really concerned about the situation of Venezuelans, why don't, why not pressure your own government to get rid of the sanctions? Uh, let's go down there and do. Oh, you're pro-business. That's great. You're pro-free market. That's great. Let's saturate the place with free market, uh, with business ventures, with uh, with uh, with getting involved in that way, and then uh, socialism. If it's as weak as they claim, which I agree, it will collapse under its own weight as it did in Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, it's like these people that believe we have to blow up the Middle East so that God can come down and have the second coming. He doesn't need our help if that's what he wants to do. And the same is true with socialism. It doesn't need our help to collapse. It will collapse. The best thing to do is for us to is do what the Chinese and Russians are doing, do business there, you know? So whatever. And I think a lot of them don't understand that. I, I did a podcast on this the other day about the about sanctions. And, and a lot of people don't understand that the sanctions, they alienate the U.S. from people who would be natural reformers within the country because no one's ever going to choose a foreign power over their their brother, their family, their neighbors, uh, because, like you said, economic sanctions. I feel that they end up just empowering the regime because the people go to the regime for the solution. And I want to ask you, do you think like after all of this, do you think Maduro has even more support now? Yeah, it probably does. I mean, that's natural. But the other thing that, that people should understand is that uh, it might just be the case that the Venezuelans want to have a socialist system. So who is it? How is it our job to impose something else on them that they want? What if they want that? Okay, whatever. Uh, you know, I mean, what business is it of ours to tell them if 50% plus one want it? Maybe in 20 years, uh, they'll start they'll start changing their minds, especially if they see us setting a good example instead of a bad example. You know, so it's it's it actually is an act of aggression for us to presume that we should be able to impose an economic system on them when they may not be ready for it. Change should be evolutionary, not revolutionary. Uh, revolutions very very rarely. I think Dr. Paul said there's only been one revolution in 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 history that's the, the end result is better than the started, and that was the American Revolution. So there's a lot of there's a lot of faulty thinking that goes into this and there are a lot of faulty assumptions you know we had Nassim Nicholas Taleb speak at our conference last year who I consider one of the most brilliant philosophers one of the greatest libertarians a legendary investor and he made a great point you know it'd be very possible and I'm going to misquote him but you'll get the essence of it it's very possible to have anarchism at a local level and communism at a village level uh, you know and that certainly would uh, would be fine and would be completely okay within the libertarian principle if it's all voluntary. So there's this kind of uh, libertarian Trotskyism that presumes that we have a duty of going overseas and telling everyone else how to live. And I'm sorry, that violates the non-aggression principle. Yeah, and, and I think they're missing a point that like, that Hugo Chavez didn't bring these economic systems that they have in place right now. Like they were, they had a socialist light system for a long time, at least, is from what I've known, they, they've had a, a socialist-like system or at least social democrats in charge for, for, for decades. And 
like what would be the outcome like what would what what would regime change create like what would what because like i always went under the assumption that politics or policy always comes down from the culture and if the venezuelan people want a socialist country then like are they going to aren't they if they have fair and democratic elections aren't they just going to continue to put in social democrats or socialist politicians yeah, and if that's what they want, then who are we to tell them they can't? You know, they're not going to, you know, put on their their suits and turn into German bankers tomorrow. There is a there is culture. There is such a thing as culture and history, you know, and that certainly that certainly is a fact. But the other thing about you know, so the word socialism has become sort of a weaponized word. It's it's a, it's a bogeyman uh, that they use. You know, I I, I was looking around at uh, some different indicators of relative socialism, and when you look at Venezuela on the scale of other countries. It's, you know, it's around there with France and Finland and, uh, uh, you know, Germany is a little better, but Italy, it's all in that neighborhood. You know, it's not like uh, it's not like 1950 in Kiev or something, you know. So it's a word that has been used, I think, as a dog whistle for libertarians to get them on board for regime change. Um, And it's it's dangerous to think that way. And if you look at how the Venezuelans, okay the natural resource of oil has been nationalized and it's used to compensate the people, uh, food stuffs, I guess they get a basic food package and medical and all this stuff. Well, we have a similar system in Alaska uh, where every Alaskan resident gets a check, I think for a thousand bucks a month or something like this. I don't know, a thousand a year, whatever it is, but it's part of their share of the oil revenue. So it's not that awfully different from what we do. It's different in, in scale and degree or what have you, but it's not like something that landed off the face of Mars or something, you know? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't want to argue for socialism. (laughs) Yeah. Detractors are going to be angry. (laughs) But the fact is those living in the worst poverty before Chavez and after Chavez, their lives did improve. And that's objectively true. Uh, That doesn't mean I think it's the best system. Obviously, it's not. Uh, for a number of reasons that anyone who studies Austrian economics would understand. But it is a fact that it did help improve abysmally poor fourth world level uh, standard of living to be a, a, a third world. Uh, and I don't think there would be much more to offer after that, but it did do uh, some good in the interim there. Uh, but um, again, the word has been weaponized and everyone is, uh, so, so many people, you know, somehow thinking that I'm, you know, uh, supporting the the concept of socialism I'm, i don't want it to be used as a tool to mobilize support for regime change well i find it pretty hard to fathom to someone to weaponize uh the, the word socialism against you when you're the co-host of the ron paul liberty report well that makes the- it that makes it even juicier for them to accuse me of, of that you know and it's weird and i'm, I'm kind of suspicious but uh, you know maybe I, I torture myself by looking at twitter too much but all of a sudden, out of the woodwork, there are all these strange accounts. Uh, you don't know what it's like. I'm here in Venezuela. You know, and I wonder, really? I mean, I know that the CIA is pretty good at putting together a lot of these sock puppet accounts. And, you know, just, I'm, frankly, I'm pretty suspicious about a lot of this stuff. You think that the, there's a lot of bot accounts that have been created by the U.S.? I, 
I would think they'd be amiss if they weren't doing something like this. And we know for a fact that they do this. The military does this. The CIA does this. It's part of a full spectrum warfare. And I think it's an important part. So another thing that like another common talking point uh, that comes out, and this is coming from the, the anti-interventionists, is that the U.S., the only reason why they want to, the anti-interventionists, the non-interventionists, uh, they're saying that the U.S., their main strategic interest in Venezuela is just, frankly, their oil as well as their mineral wealth. Um, I mean, do you think that's the case or do you think it's, it's just it's the case of uh, just trying to boot Russia and China out? I think it's probably some kind of a combination. I think, you know, from what I understand, and I'm, I'm far from an expert, from what I understand, uh, Venezuelan oil has to have a very special, a very special kind of refining process. Uh, and it's actually a, a bit more expensive. Uh, ironically, all of this mischief is raising the price of oil. It's probably going to give them more money in the end. But, um, but I, think the, I think they want the oil, but I think, especially some on the left, I think are a little bit too simplistic in thinking we just want to grab that oil. I think it is about denying access uh, to, uh, to Russia and China. And we've seen that throughout Africa. There's a race for resources there. The China, you think about uh, someplace like Sudan, the Chinese were the first in there investing in their oil, in their, uh, oil infrastructure. This is uh, several years ago now. And in the U.S., what did we have? We had this kind of a fake, uh, say fake news or fake uh, concern about uh, Darfur. Uh, we've got to save the Sudanese. We've got to, and so they ended up breaking the country in half. And it was a great victory for American human rights uh, neocons and neoliberals and humanitarian interventionists. And now the situation is is a thousand times worse in South Sudan than it was before. But back to the point, the Chinese were down there, and there's a lot of oil down there, and they were getting involved in that. And I think this is what the uh, what the U.S. spooks did to uh, to wrong foot them in Africa. And there's you know, there really is a battle going on in Africa right now for resources. We don't want anyone else to have it. And that kind of segues me into something else. Uh, so I know that on uh, the Ron Paul Liberty Report, you were talking about um, the Strait of Hormuz. So I want to kind of segue over into Iran a little bit. Um, we talk a lot about Iran, about how the sanctions are, I think they're going to be doing a lot more harm than good in the long run. And, uh, now Iran's talking about shutting down the Strait of Hormuz. Um, I guess, can you provide just general context of what the Strait of Hormuz is, you know, why it's important, and what do you think the consequence would be if Iran took measures to shut it down? Yeah, it is a good question, and we did cover that on today's show. But um, the, it's a narrow strait the, uh, to, to pass through, I think, the northern and, and eastern segment, and I mean, I may be wrong, but you do go through Iranian territorial waters according to the laws of the Sea Treaty, the 1982 law of the Sea Treaty. So there is a situation where when the U.S. tries to go through there, they literally have to, they have to communicate with the Iranians uh, to, to let them know they're going through. So that's how, that's how narrow it is. And 20 to 25 percent of the world's oil and refined uh, petroleum products goes through there on any given day. So if that were to shut down, Everyone that studies it says it would have enormous implications for the world economy. Uh, even even a even a, a brief shutdown would have huge implications. And you know, we, we talked a lot about Scott Ritter's uh, piece in the American Conservative uh, today or yesterday about this. And Scott had a, did a great job of just breaking the whole thing down. But he points out that uh, the the private oil tankers are going to have a hell of a time getting insurance 
uh, if there's some skirmishes around that area. And so that may even, even if it's a very brief shutdown, it may have the, uh, the mid to long-term effect of really messing up the economy. So it's, it's, a, it's a very delicate situation. The Iranians have threatened to close it if we start mucking around in there. And we've threatened to uh, prevent them from, from uh, exiting their ports with ships filled with oil. So the question is how far are either side, that's why I think we called it a red line in talks of war. How far is either side willing to go on this? Uh, it's, uh, I think it's an incredibly dangerous situation, don't, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think that right now uh, we're closer to war with Iran than we have been in a really long time. And it's pretty scary because what I always try to tell my listeners and, and the message I always try to put out is like if we've ever got involved in a military conflict in Iran, it would be so much more. It would just be hell on earth. And uh, I try to point out that it wouldn't just be like Middle East instability. If you think it's bad now, wait till there's a war in Iran because it's not just going to be a war in Iran. Uh, it's going to be a war in Iraq. I'm sure Hezbollah will get involved in it. It will, it will be a global, it will be a Middle Eastern, total Middle Eastern conflict. And um, I don't think a lot of people understand that. So I always try to put that message out that it would just be terrible. And there's been war simulations uh, where, you know, we've lost thousands of soldiers in, in mock invasion. So I, I just... I cannot see any type of military solution to Iran besides going cr completely insane and dropping a nuclear bomb, which is nuts. And I don't want to give them ideas, but uh, uh, it's 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 just craziness to me that that's even a suggestion. And, and the fact that we're getting closer to that is is uh, it just shows the irresponsibility of the guys who have these high positions, like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, who. Self-admittedly, lies, cheats, and steals. Yeah, and, and also, you know, you you get into some weird theology issues as well. You know, and you, you you've heard Pompeo talk about how uh, God sent Trump to to bring on the second coming or something weird like this. This is pretty scary. I mean, I, I'm I'm all for people having religious views. I have strong views my own of my own. But in a situation like that, you have to wonder: is there a line that you're crossing where you're uh, you're no longer serving your government, but you're serving your own sectarian uh, belief system. And I think that is quite dangerous. I think that's why they're, they're dealing so much with Iran in the Middle East. But, you know, the, the foreign minister of, of Iran, uh, Mohammad Reif, said that uh, he's worried about a false flag. And that sounds like something that the, uh, that the war hawks would be able to cook up over there. And that's something like that that's fairly spectacular. And you're going to have a lot of people... <laughs> A lot of people signing on, certainly the media will be hook, line, and sinker for war. Uh, the libertarians will probably come to your house and my house and beat us up and, you know, for not being with the program. So it's going to get ugly if there's some kind of really nasty, uh, really nasty false flag. It, what I find really interesting about Iran is that I feel like if they would do something there, they wouldn't do it a direct military intervention. I feel like they would try to set some type of ethnic divide between Arab populations there and Persian populations or something like they did in Syria where they would cause some type of eternal strife. Because it certainly seems that they're, they're really pointing all fingers on them. They even, Mike Pompeo even blamed Yemen on Iran. He was blaming the humanitarian crisis in Yemen on Iran in that, in that, um, the same speech where he announced the waivers. So it's just, it was unbelievable. I found that really really just quite gross when he blamed when he put the blame on Iran and he uh, didn't 
give any culpability to the Saudis. And yeah, we us. lie, we cheat, we steal. <laughs> he lied, as usual. I mean, the Saudis, it was a war of aggression. And there's, it still is a war of aggression. There's no question about it. And if, uh, you know, even if, even if the Houthis were seeking aid from the Iranians, what's, what's wrong with that? We seek aid from our allies. You know, what's, uh, how, how, is it, how is it okay if we do these things and nobody else is allowed to in the rest of the world? You know, they're the victims of Saudi aggression, yet they're not allowed to look around for allies to help them out. That's what they blame Assad. Oh, yeah, you got the Russians and the, and the Iranians to come help you. Well, you're damn right I did. I was about to get taken over by, by a bunch of, you know, lunatic head choppers. Of course I did. You know, as if there's something wrong with that. It's, it's just that's a bizarre way of looking at the world. It really is. It's something I found an interesting take is uh, that one of the big reasons, and this ties into Strait of Hormuz uh, for the war in Yemen, is because Saudi Arabia wants to get port access on the south of Yemen to circumvent the Strait of Hormuz in the case that that would shut down. I was wondering if you thought that that's something that I've talked about quite a bit on this podcast. And um, I guess I'm looking for maybe a little reassurance, uh, reassurance that that take is uh, at least has some type of validity. So I can, so I'm, so I'm putting my audience in the right direction. Yeah, I've definitely read that myself in a number of occasions. So I think that is the case, you know. And I think, I think another factor in the whole thing is is Israel. And I think I have to believe that the Israelis, maybe Netanyahu and a few radicals on this aside, they are, this is going to be a hellstorm. Because everyone is, is ticked off at the Israelis. They bombed Syria about 200 times. Everyone is just chomping at the bit. If this thing blows, Israel is going gonna, is gonna to be in a world of pain, too. Of course, they have the ability. They've got the, the military ability to, to smash everyone to, to shreds. But I think in the interim, they're going to they're gonna be in pretty bad shape, too. So I can't imagine the Israelis are too enthused about a big war breaking out uh, uh, with the U.S. and Iran. I, I just don't believe it. You don't you don't think that they would support a war with the U.S. and Iran? I don't. I just can't imagine them looking forward to something like that. I think they could. Of course, they could. You know, they could take on anyone. They've got nukes. They could blow the whole place apart. But they're going to have a they're going to have a hell of a firestorm in the process. Who wants that? I don't think they. I don't think they want that. I'm, I'm sure. That just like we've got our crazies, I'm sure there are some crazies over there who might want it. But I think if you stopped an Israeli on the street, uh, I can't imagine they'd be enthusiastic about a war with Iran. It certainly doesn't seem like it would be in their interest. And plus, don't forget, uh, Iran has the second largest Jewish community in the Middle East after Israel. So there's going to be a lot of targeting. My guess is maybe I'm wrong, but certainly there'll be some scapegoating of uh, of Iranian Jews if that were to happen. And that would be horrible, too. It, it's something that's that, that's interesting. I spoke to uh, Mohammed Sahimi, who uh, he's a professor at usc and he uh, he writes for a uh, low blog he's wrote for he, he writes for antiwar.com sometimes and he wrote this really telling article called iranians fake and true opposition and he and he went down the the list of different iranian lobby groups in the u.s that are you know ex-monarchist and loyal to the shah and things like that who are really championing regime change and they're seen by by the the Iranian public, the, the the general Iranian public, they're looked at as com- complete traitors. Even the people who are progressive and who want internal change, they they look at them and it's like, wow, this guy is is trying to lobby for policies that actually are going to hurt just the individual person. So I thought that w- that was a really interesting take. It's kind of like when we were talking about Venezuela a little while ago. If the, 
if the Iranians want to live with the kind of sort of theocratic system they have, it's not my cup of tea, but it doesn't bother me. I'm not, no one's forcing me to live there, you know, and if you don't like living there, if you would treat them normally, the people who don't like living there should be able to go somewhere else and live and work. It's, uh, it's just this weird kind of messianic thing. I think Americans are really, it's, it's like a, some kind of virus that's taking over that we've become this messianic force that feels the need, this obligation to change the world and make it exactly like we are. I just don't get it. It just, it seems crazy to me. Yeah, and they use those two, they had the two uh, vague notions, you know, on, on uh, in the Middle East, it's the vague notion of radical Islam. It's always a fight against radical Islam because it's vague enough where it's it, it can be anything. And then it's scary enough sounding that it, it could, uh, it sounds like it can't be reasoned with. Um, and then socialism, and that's the other the other vague term that's used as, 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 as a pretext to, uh, um, you know, it could be anyone with an economic policy that you don't like. But I mean, who I mean, yeah, you or I wouldn't want to live in one of those countries um, or abide by those those systems of government. But, you know, if the public wants it. Why why force it down their straight their, their throat to change? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I like to have occasional beer. I don't know if they have beer in Iran, but I wouldn't want to live in Saudi Arabia. I don't think you can get it there. But, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, when I was uh, working on Dr. Paul's congressional staff, that his chief of staff at the time was, was a fellow named Tom, a really smart guy. And I would, I would uh, draft some complicated uh, statement on something or other. And he would say, Daniel, you have to be able to explain it in a bumper sticker, you know. And I think that's a good point. And, uh, but, and I think, unfortunately, the people who are opposed to our view, that the authoritarians, they're pretty good at bumper stickers. And that's, that's, that's it. Uh, you know, uh, radical jihad, radical Islam, socialism. And it's, it's these are emotional words and, and they're very effective at mobilizing people, uh, you know, catalyzing support with those kinds of things. Yeah, I, I completely agree. They, they, uh, they really weaponize those, those, uh, those bumper sticker, uh, you know, slogans. Um, I mean, is there anything else? I know that we're running and I say, I know you mentioned about you'd had around 30 minutes for running close to 50 minutes. So I really, I really do appreciate um, all the insight. Like, well, I'll, le- I'll let you go after this one last question. So what do you think is the, I guess, the probability that the, the U.S. engages in some type of military intervention um, in either Venezuela in, or in either Iran, uh, just because they seem to be on the, the eye of Sauron is, is almost, uh, is really gazing on them right now? I think it's better than 50-50. Uh, to be honest, I hate to say that. Uh, but I think if Trump falls for this, he's he's going to be surprised. All of his friends in the Washington Post who hated him up until the second before he pushed the button, uh, they're all going to turn on him. Uh, he'll be abandoned. He'll be remembered as an absolute abject failure. And if, if someone could just convey that idea to him, he might think twice. But the gatekeepers there are all in favor of war. So uh, I wish I could be more optimistic, uh, Henry. I really do. Yeah, me too. I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still hoping for the best. I, I'm still hoping that there's some people in the foreign, uh, the foreign policy establishment who, who, who uh, you know, consider themselves at the very least foreign policy realist. Um, I feel like that term's coming up more and more uh, today. That I'm a foreign policy realist. That 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 know the harm, or and know the human toll of uh, of of not just American soldiers, but just the. The, how how much it would alienate us from the act, the the international community that 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 know the consequences of these wars, so I'm kind of pulling for that that there there's there's some there's some voices of reason in there. It just seems that the guys who have 
the the really high positions are the the kookiest of the kookiest kookiest <laughs> that's exactly you got it you got it um well this is this is this is great i i, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to to speak to me and and i know that you you know you you just can't, got off a flight so uh i can't really tell you how much this means to me and, and it's absolutely thrilling to speak to you especially since i just rely on you so much i rely on your work so much it's 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 really awesome to speak to you well, thank you so much for having me on. I, I really wish you the best, and I hope your show grows by leaps and bounds. I hope all of our shows grow by leaps and bounds. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.